good morning. Uh, beautiful day. Great to be together with y'all for worship this morning. I'm glad to be here. Um, I'm glad to be looking with you at Ephesians chapter 3 uh, because these are, these are encouraging words. Um, this is a text where the Apostle Paul prays wonderful and wondrous things for the church, um, a, a hopeful prayer that God would continue to do what he has promised to do, which is to be at work at our lives, to not leave us where we are, to not leave us where we're currently struggling uh, and where we are you know, currently just kind of wrestling, uh, but to continue to move us along. And uh, so we're gonna, I'm going to read to you uh, from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. By the way, if you're new to Christ the King and you don't know this or you want to, it's fine to take your mask off at this point in the service if that's what you want to do. I thought I would remind you. Um, because somebody said, hey, Clay, you get to take your mask off every week. And I was like, yeah, but I have to preach. I mean, I'll trade? No. Uh, but anyway, so Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14. I'm going to read through verse 21. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. To you, Lord Christ, be all glory forever and ever. I pray that that, that these prayers that are offered for us in these words, that we would be filled to the fullness of God by the power at work within us would be made true in our lives for the first time even for some, but for all of us that we would be encouraged and strengthened Uh, by our encounter with you this morning, Lord Jesus, in your name, amen. The late and great uh, British pastor and theologian, John Stott, once said that if you tell me what it is that you pray for, I'll tell you what you most desire. So tell me your prayers and I'll tell you your desires. The, The logic of these words is simple, that the content of our prayers indicates What are the strongest desires in our hearts? The things that we hope for the most. So we could say that we desire all kinds of things. That we hope for all kinds of things. But then what is it that we're actually, you know, letting out of our mouths and letting out of our hearts to the Lord when we pray? I find that when Shannon and I pray together in the mornings, probably 80% of the content of our prayers is focused on our children. It's not a bad thing, it's just the way that it is. It's kind of instructive data. You know, we pray that they'll continue to walk with the Lord. We pray that they'll find good Christian friends that encourage them and have Christian relationships. We, you know, pray that that the Lord will lead them to get meaningful work and meaningful jobs, all kinds of different things. 
and that you can tell, you know, from the content of our prayer together, kind of what the hope and what the desires of our hearts are. Now, even lack of prayer indicates some kind of a desire. Lack of prayer signals deep down that at some ultimate level, we believe that we are self-sufficient and we feel like we can kind of make our way through life without the intervention of the Lord, even if we confess, you know, something different in the way that we speak. So what is it that the Apostle Paul desires for the church? What are the desires of Paul? Well, let's take a look at what he prays for in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, and we can find out. The thrust of Paul's prayer for the church is that God's incredible redemptive purpose, where he created a new community, a new society out of all of the world called the church, that we would personalize that redemptive purpose in our own personal experiences. In other words, that we as individual followers of Jesus would be so saturated by the amazing grace and the love of Christ that we would live out of it, that we would lean into it and that we would live our lives out of that grace. Now, the fact that Paul is praying those things for us means it's aspirational for us, right? It means that we haven't, all of those things haven't come to full fruition in our lives yet. That, that owning the full redemptive purposes of God on our behalf is not the normal or the natural way that we live. We, we normally and we naturally tend to want to live either out of our self-sufficiency or we live out of our anxiety or we live out of our worry or we live out of our fear or, you know all of those kinds of different things. It's a struggle for us. It's a struggle for us because we're human and that we very often as human beings forget where our fundamental identity lies even as Christians. Because if you are a Christian, your fundamental identity lies in your union with Christ. But we begin to substitute all kinds of other things for our fundamental identity. And when we do that, we get off kilter and we get really out of whack because all of those things are destined to pass away. And so instead of being rooted in God's grace, we tend to live our lives kind of tossed around by the winds, you know. Uh, of, the, of fear or of other hopes and of other desires. And so we need to be reminded of who we truly are in Christ. And then we need to be reminded again. And then we need to be reminded again. And we need to be reminded again and again and again. And what is it that we need to be reminded of? What is this hope in us that, that Paul prays for? Well, he says that we are one in Christ Jesus. We are one in Christ Jesus. And... God promises, God promises to be at work in our lives. We are one in Christ Jesus and God promises to be at work in our lives. If you were here last week, you would have heard me say that the Apostle Paul began a prayer for the church, but then he got distracted. He, he, he used those exact words in verse 1 that he uses in verse 14, for this reason. Meaning in verse 1, he was going to pray for the church, but then he went off on this parenthetical tangent, this beautiful parentheses of, of pastoral theology, of, uh, of promoting unity among followers of Jesus, of promoting unity in the church. But here, in verse 14, he comes back to his prayer. For this reason, 
I bow my knees before God the Father. And here we come to a massively important principle of understanding the Bible. Because if you're going to understand what Paul is praying for here, the first thing you have to ask yourself is this. Well, what's the reason? He says, for this reason. I mean, what is the reason? What's the ground of this prayer? And to figure out the ground of this prayer, we have to go all the way back to chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. And wrap it up with Paul's entire argument thus far in his letter to the Ephesians. He says, as individuals, this is what Paul has been trying to convince us now for, over, for two chapters. As individuals, we are united to Christ by faith. We are saved by grace through faith. And we are sealed in that salvation with the gift of the promised Holy Spirit. But by the power of the Holy Spirit and being united to Christ, we are also united to one another by our common profession in a common Lord. So if you're a follower of Jesus, this is who you are at the core of your identity. You're united to Christ by faith. And you are united to your fellow believers by this common profession of faith in a common Lord. And because this is true, for this reason, because this is true, Paul prays that we would be strengthened with power, that we would be rooted in love, and that we would be strengthened in knowledge. So first, as members of this redeemed community called the church, Paul prays that we would be strengthened with power. These are the exact words that Paul uses in verse 16. And the power that is referred to here is the power of God himself that is at work in your life through the gift of the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. He's not saying that we become God. We do not become God. That is not our hope. That is not where where things are going. It is that God himself dwells in us. He dwells in you if you're a believer And his very power is at work in your life and accomplishing those things that would be impossible in your life if it were not for his power at work in you. You know, we're super blessed to live in Houston. And one of the great gifts that we have in this city is the Texas Medical Center. Uh, You know, I've spent about two decades now in ministry and one of my proudest achievements is knowing how to navigate the medical center. In fact, one of the most painful parts of COVID-19 is that I'm going to have to relearn how to navigate the medical center because I haven't been able to go to the hospital in over a year and I'm a little bummed by that but I know where to park. I know where the the passages are. I know how to get from hospital to hospital. I know where the purple elevators are, you know. The one thing that I don't know about, the, the, the great mystery of the Texas Medical Center that I have not solved is why there is a McDonald's in St. Luke's, which is also one of the greatest heart hospitals in the entire world. It's an unsolvable mystery. But you know, I've been spending 20 years kind of walking around in there. It's a daunting place uh, when you're unfamiliar with it, particularly a place like MD Anderson. You know, which is like one of the, if not the leading, you know, cancer hospitals in in the world. But if you're a person who has just received a diagnosis, if you're a person who has just become fearful at, at what is, you know, happening to you, and then trying to navigate that 
world, it can be really frightening, it can be really daunting, and it can feel like every door is closed, and it can feel like you don't know what to do, and you don't know how to, who to talk to, you don't know how to get anywhere, and, and you can feel like you're just beating your head against a wall, and, and working, and working, and working, and not getting anywhere. But, if you ever come into contact with someone who knows how the system works, Somebody who is inside of that system. All of a sudden, doors that you didn't even know were there become visible to you. And a a path that looked like rocky and covered with brush and bushes and all kinds of things. It clears in front of you. And things that seem to you to be impossible become possible. That is what happens when someone who has power within an institution begins to work on your behalf. That person, he or she, begins to accomplish for you what you could never accomplish all by yourself. And this is a super encouraging reality. Because I believe that all of us, at some level, are struggling with something that we just can't do anything about in our lives or in our heart. Maybe it is a besetting sin that has been a part of your life for as long as you can possibly remember. And maybe you've been a a believer for a long time and you just think, I can't do anything about this. It just won't go away. Or maybe it's an addiction in your life that you can't make any headway on. And maybe you've read all of the books. Maybe you've read all of the blogs. Maybe you've watched all the TED Talks on YouTube, but you just can't make any headway. Maybe you wake up in the morning and you say, that's it. This stops today. But then by the time you go to bed, you go to bed ashamed, berating yourself, ashamed of yourself. You work and you work and you work and you struggle and you struggle and you struggle, but the whole thing begins to look like trying to navigate the medical center for the very first time. You don't even know if you're in the right building, you know, for whatever it is that you need. The good news is this. The power of God is at work in you. I'll say it again. If, you're a, if you are a believer, this is an objective truth. The power of God is at work in you. You can have hope. There is nothing in your life that is beyond the redemptive power and the redemptive healing of God's hand. And how can you know That God will be committed to that work in your life. How can you know that he's not just going to get frustrated with you and throw up his hands and say, that's it. You know, you're a hopeless case, you know, Clay. Forget it. I'm out. How do we know that's not going to happen? Because of verse 17. The power is defined in verse 17 as Christ dwelling in your heart by faith. And Paul chooses a very important word right there, dwelling. He does not say that Jesus comes in for a visit when you first become a Christian and then he gives you like 20 bucks and pats you on the back and says, good luck, you know, I'm out, on to the next person. He's not visiting. He is moving into your life. Christ dwelling in your heart means he moves into your heart, he unpacks his suitcase, he puts all of his stuff in the drawers And he is not leaving. He is not leaving. And because he is not leaving, Paul prays that we would be strengthened 
with power in that knowledge. That we would be able to live our lives out of the power of God that is actually at work in us through faith as we hope in him. That is our first prayer. The second is that as a member of this redeemed community called the church, that we would be rooted in love. What is Christ trying to produce in us ultimately through the power that is at work in us? Now you could answer that question in a lot of ways and a lot of things would be right according to the Bible but Paul talks about one thing in particular here. What is God trying to to build in us and strengthen us in by his power? Love. Love. That you and I would be rooted and grounded in love. These are metaphors that, that, that love is the soil, Paul says, of our lives. That the rest of our lives blossom and flourish out of. Love is the foundation, Paul says, upon which the rest of the structure of our lives is built. Now I think this has a double meaning to it, of course. It means first that our lives are rooted and grounded in Christ who is himself love. That being rooted in him, remember you're united in Christ, but being rooted in Christ, that Christ by his power at work in us would begin producing in us that most powerful and that most beautiful, and the Bible says that most fundamental of all Christian virtues, which is love. The Bible says faith, hope, and love, these three remain, but the greatest of these is love. What would it look like if the ground and foundation of our lives was love? You know, the Bible consistently defines love not in emotional terms, but in terms of how we live. It's, it's, love is a term of action, not necessarily simply a, 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 a term of emotion. The Apostle John defines it. He says, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave himself up for us, making, uh, giving up his life as a sacrifice for our sins. So to be rooted and grounded in love is to have the ground of our lives mimicking the love of Christ, which is giving up our own lives for the sake and for the lives of the other, giving up our own desires for the good of the other. Now, of course, This is super weird because this is completely the opposite of the way that the world works. We all know that. This is completely upside down from the way of the world. Our world tells you at every turn that your personal happiness is the greatest and the highest good. Everywhere you look, everywhere, just just take some time this week and try to figure out how many times you hear that or see that. Uh, This is the ethos of our culture, that whatever it is that makes you happy, as long as it doesn't hurt somebody else, and that's a tricky wicket because that definition of hurt gets defined differently by different people, but whatever it is that makes you happy, as long as it doesn't hurt somebody else, lean into it with everything that you have. Lean into it with everything that you have. But Jesus tells us, That this doesn't work, actually. Jesus tells us that true joy, even true happiness, even true happiness is found when we give up ourselves for the good of the other. Maybe you've been married long enough to realize that this is true. 
Or maybe you are, you know, you are young in your marriage or maybe you're watching your parents as kind of they work through their relationship. Uh, what is it that happens in a marriage when you have two individuals that are each pursuing their own happiness? Neither one of them are happy. That's what happens. What happens when you have a marriage when two people begin to work for the good and the life and the joy and the value and the glory of the other person? Well, that other person is definitely built up. But strangely enough, you know what? The others are happy. It's, it, it becomes a joy-filled relationship. It's, it's, just, it's, it's very opposite of the way that we think. It's the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. But that's what happens when we are rooted and we are grounded in love. That's the second prayer. The third prayer is that as a member of this redeemed community called the church, that we would be strengthened in knowledge. Now, the knowledge that Christ is cultivating in your life is very important because Paul is not really talking about what we normally call knowledge, you know, which is just kind of knowing things cognitively. Paul's not saying that you would just know about God or that you would just know about the Bible or that you would just know about the things of God. Knowledge in, in the Bible is a relational term. It means knowing something to the point of like fully entering into it in a relational kind of way. And so you see it in verse 19, that the, and 18 and 19, that the knowledge of Christ is in cultivating in us this multidimensional love of Christ that fills all in all. That we would comprehend the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ. Not just about the love of Christ. Not just say, oh yeah, I know a little bit about the love of Jesus, but to know the love of Christ, which means that, that, that we lean into and that we live out of that love. Now, commentators throughout the ages have labored to describe the majesty of these multidimensional words in verse 18, that the, that the, the love of Christ is high and, and, and deep and, and long and wide. What does that mean? My favorite commentator uh, who talked about this was early on in the church when everything was, a, was like a metaphor for something else. And, and this commentator talked about it in terms of the, the cross upon which Jesus died, the, the the depth was the base that held it into the ground, that the height of it was the, the beam of the cross that pointed into heaven, reminding us of the lengths that God went to to save us and that the, the length and the breadth were Jesus' hands as they were outstretched, just waiting to embrace any who would come to him by faith. I have no idea if that's what Paul actually means, but the fact that so many people have labored and labored and labored to just get a handle a little bit on what this means means it's so rich and it is so deep and it is so powerful that we will never know. But here's something I would encourage you to think about. Christ's salvation, filling all in all, encompassing the depths and the heights and the width and the breadth of all things, is sufficient to reach every corner of this universe. Christ's salvation is absolutely sufficient to reach every corner of the cosmos. There's no part of this universe that is out of the reach of our Savior. But do you know what that means? Because, because Paul's not only talking about this in cosmic terms, he's actually praying for it in personal terms. This means that there's no part of you that Jesus can't reach either. There's no part of you that Jesus can't 
reach with his multi-dimensional love. He wants you. He wants you to have knowledge of the full salvation that is offered in Christ. He, he, he wants... He, he wants you to understand that there's no part of you that he can't touch. That there's no part of you that he can't redeem. That Jesus does not only fully save, he saves you fully. Now of course the Bible is clear from the very beginning to the very end that we will always struggle with sin in this life. That until Jesus returns and eradicates sin, we are going to do battle with sin. We are not talking about some kind of unbiblical uh, notion of sinless perfection in this life. But you can have hope. You can have hope that Jesus is not finished with you yet. He didn't just drop by to say hi and then leave. And while you struggle with many things in this life, you struggle with those things in this life fully enveloped by the multidimensional love of Jesus that fills the fullness of all. It is a really wonderful, wonderful thing. You know, this passage has ministered to me this week as I have been fighting, probably along with you, some level of anxiety. You know, some level of just kind of general worry. You know, some kind of hum of anxiety that just kind of, you know, hums in my ears. It's like the, it's like the background noise of, of my life. And these crazy days that we live in, you know, with cultural, uh, you know, hard things happening, political polarization, and, you know, people just... The, the, the de facto way of our world is just splitting us farther and farther and farther apart from each other and, and you know, just kind of forcing us to take sides and to go to battle against somebody. And I'm actively finding deep comfort and powerful tonic to worry, to worry in the high and the deep and the broad and wide love of Jesus that fills me and envelops me. How about you? Are you feeling anxious right now in, in any way? You know, there is a lot out there in our world that is, that is causing anxiety. It almost seems like it's the goal of everybody to cause anxiety right now. You know, the constant barrage of news and commentary, ongoing concerns about, you know, uh, job security or the, the, the ultimate long-term economic effects of the last year, continuing health concerns, concerns over mental and emotional health due to isolation and loneliness, uh, concern over aging parents. It's been a very difficult year if you've been caring for loved ones. Um, you know, concern over our children, concern over the pace and the, and the breadth and the depth of cultural change in our land. There's absolutely no shortage of external anxiety producers in our lives. And it would seem that the thing to do is to get swept up in all of this. To sort of feel like you have to do something about all this. That's kind of how I felt for the last year. Like I know something, I'm supposed to do something. Or I'm at least supposed to have an opinion about it. Or if I don't even have an opinion about it, I'm at least supposed to get it worked up about it. Right? That's just kind of how we're living our lives. And so I did a little bit of a, of a heart inventory this week. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you the same questions I asked myself. I didn't do well on this test, by the way. But, but, but ask yourself these questions in all honesty. Are you more or are you less easily angered than you were February of 2020? Are you more or are you less anxious than you were 
in February of 2020. Are you more or are you less frustrated with people who have different opinions than you do about political related matters or pandemic related matters or really you know any such thing? I think as a society, the answer to these questions in my mind, or at least the people that I talk to, is pretty clear. We are becoming, as a culture, an angry, an anxious, and a frustrated people. But what if the followers of Jesus flip the script on that? What if the followers of Jesus turn that on its head as we were more and more rooted and anchored and grounded in the multidimensional love of Jesus? What if instead of being angry, we were kind and we were patient and we were gentle? What if instead of being anxious about the, the present and, and the future, we leaned into the sovereignty of God and the truth that nothing can separate you from the love of Christ Jesus in, uh, in, in, in the gospel? What if instead of being frustrated, we were charitable? Uh, you know, we were thinking the best of the other, not leaping to the worst case scenario, not assigning motives all the time, but just thinking the best of others and knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that no matter what, somebody else that we are interacting with is in some level of their life hurting badly. And maybe we can meet that hurt. Find that elusive uh, fruit of the Holy Spirit called peace. You know, it may seem impossible right now. But it is possible in your life. Ephesians 3 makes it clear that your life really can be changed and really can be transformed in the present by the love of Jesus, who is beautifully relentless in pursuit of your heart. And that transformed by the multidimensional love of Christ, rooted and grounded in love, we have the opportunity of showing the rest of the world a different way to live the world's going to think we're crazy they're going to think we have lost our minds but rooted and grounded in love exhibiting the love of Christ taking hold of that transformative work of the Holy Spirit that is working in our lives and leaning into it and living out of it. That is the way to peace and to health and to our mission in the world. You know, like some of you, uh, maybe, I ended up watching Prince Philip's funeral last Saturday that took place in St. George's Chapel in Windsor. I thought it was fascinating, a really interesting service because it sort of encapsulated who Prince Philip was vocationally. You know, uh, for 73 years while he's married to the Queen, he was always sublimated, he was always in the shadows, he was always in the background. Physically, he actually had to walk three steps behind her everywhere he went. And so at his funeral, he was in the shadows as well. It was all readings and all music, you know, no long sermon, no glowing eulogies. It's a very simple service that kind of encapsulated the way that he lived. I have frankly always felt sorry for Prince Philip. Um, I just felt like he had a, like one of the world's hardest jobs. Because as a young man, Prince Philip was athletic 
He was adventurous. You know, he was in the Navy. He was like a man of action. He liked to do things. You know, he liked to lead. And then all of a sudden, his wife becomes the queen at an early age, and he's three steps behind, right? For 73 years, just kind of supporting in the shadows. And because Prince Philip felt like truth and meaning in life was found by what a man accomplished in life, by the time he got to be about my age, his midlife crisis was serious. And there's absolutely, there's actually an episode of The Crown that talks about this because he was absolutely fascinated with the Apollo 11 mission and the landing of the first astronauts on the moon. He thought that anyone who could accomplish a feat such as that must have discovered the meaning of life. And so when the astronauts came to Buckingham Palace to to visit him, he wanted to talk to them. He wanted to get the three of those astronauts in a room together so he could say, what did you see? What did you experience? Was God out there? And instead of having this conversation, the astronauts came into Buckingham Palace like eight-year-olds who were looking around at everything going, this place is awesome, you know? Like, what's it like living here? Like, how many servants are here? How many rooms are in this place? And Prince Philip realized that these people did not have the answers and he didn't know what to do. And he found peace in an unlikely place. He found peace from an Anglican clergyman and a bunch of burned out pastors who were were at Windsor Castle talking about being burned out as pastors. But they allowed Prince Philip to come and to talk to them. And they listened to him, even when he berated them. He told them to get up and go do something. You're never going to make anything out of your life just sitting here talking about your problems. But they kept letting him come in and treat them like that. Until one day he said, I need help from you. And he found peace in his life from people grounding him and being grounded in the love of Christ. So much so that he actually formed at Windsor Castle a center for clergy renewal and theological inquiry that is on those grounds to this day, which not coincidentally is in view of St. George's Chapel where his funeral was held. In which case, all glory went to the Lord and not to him. I think you can be encouraged y'all I think you can be encouraged trust in Christ he has not stopped working he has not stopped working in your life and he will not stop working in your life until he brings you safely home to glory you can take heart and you can be encouraged even as you struggle mightily with the weight of this world And now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for being at work in the church and in our lives individually. Would you grant that we could lean into this multi-dimensional love that fills all things and live out of it in peace?
knowing that you will bring us safely home. We ask it in your name. Amen.